Hello, and welcome to 1867 and All That, Season 2, Episode 7, Double Shuffle. Last week, we were introduced to several new figures. We met the extreme moderate Darcy McGee and saw the, the Catholic animosity which bubbled to the surface of across the Canadas, often matching the resentments of Protestants over events like the Corrigan murder. We also saw how the germ of an idea of a renewed reform coalition of what would eventually, many years later, be the origins of the modern Liberal Party uh, was at work in the mind of George Brown in his attempt to rebuild a cross-sectional coalition of reform-minded forces, linking up with Darcy McGee and the Rouge of Canada East. And finally, we were introduced to Alexander Galt, the wildly successful railway entrepreneur from the eastern townships, who resurrected this old idea that just refused to go away, the suggestion that maybe, just maybe, the solution to all of these perennial Canadian problems and political instability lay in expansion, in the creation of a federation of British American colonies across northern North America. This week, Galt and Darcy McGee are still around, and so is this idea of British North American Federation. But more importantly, at least for the moment, is this question of the seat of government. That's because in January of 1858, Queen Victoria sent Canadians a belated Christmas gift, a capital city. That is, her officials sent word to the Canadian government of her final decision that Ottawa ought to be the Canadian capital. You'll recall that Johnny Macdonald and the Liberal Conservative government had hoped that pushing the decision up to the level of royalty would put the issue on ice, cooling tempers. The whole fight over the seat of government had been intense. It was whatever the opposite of nimbyism is. Everyone wanted it not just in their backyard, but in their front yard. At first, after the announcement, not much changed. All through the first half of 1858, the Queen's decision lay dormant in the background. Various figures across the, the province still grumbled, and MacDonald had to be aware that these grumbles came not just from the usual source of George Brown and the peninsula of the Southwest, but also from the very bastion of support usually offered to the government in Cartier's Montreal and from Quebec City, too. All of this could be put off until finally the government actually needed to do something. It needed to spend some money to plan the buildings for the new capital. And that's when things got interesting. All through the winter and spring of 1858, the opposition had been growing more confident. George Brown had been negotiating with the Rouge in Lower Canada, and he had, by early summer, earned the support of the independent Irish Catholic Darcy McGee. In Parliament, on vote after vote, the government's majority decreased, with more MPs abandoning the Liberal Conservatives. And it had become clear that it was, it was the government was, that is, governing over the votes of a majority from the Western section. What would happen if some of its Eastern supporters abandoned it too? That is exactly what they were going to find out when MacDonald put forth a motion in the legislature to finalize the Queen's decision and appropriate funds to build the capital had not been a good year for John A. Macdonald. Back in December, when the Queen was preparing to send her message on the new capital to Canada, Macdonald suffered a terrible blow when his wife, Isabella, died. 
it wasn't entirely a surprise. Isabel MacDonald had been unwell for years. On several other occasions, doctors had called MacDonald back to his home, thinking that this would be the end, only for her to recover. It's not entirely clear what ailed her. Partly it was the aftereffects of childbirth. The 34-year-old Isabella had married the then 26-year-old MacDonald, and she didn't have her first child until age 38. Certainly not impossibly old at all, but older for the period, certainly for a first child. She seems also to have had tuberculosis, and this is likely what killed her. But Isabella also suffered from chronic fatigue and horrendous headaches and pains, which left her bedridden for days. To cope with the pain, she consumed vast amounts of opium, something actually not at all uncommon in this period. All of this meant that for most of his marriage, John A. lived an odd life of an almost widower, married but with a bedridden spouse. One of his two children had already died uh, very young, a good reminder about the kind of the horrendous rates of childhood uh, and especially infant mortality uh, at this age, even for the relatively well-to-do. But it was just after Christmas in 1857 that Isabella had finally succumbed to her illness and died. And so for much of the early months of 1858, John A. would have been living with this grief and changed circumstances, as well as, of course, the growing worry about the fate of his government. The deciding moment came in late July of 1858. That was when MacDonald moved the spending bill funding the new Capitol buildings in Ottawa. And that was when several opposition members decided that this had to be stopped. They put forward their motions in the House denouncing the choice of Ottawa. Although MacDonald reminded the House of the acrimonious debates which had already been expounded on this topic and the need to move past these divisions and actually make a decision. When the vote finally came, though, his words did not matter. The House voted in favor of a motion that said, in the opinion of this House, the city of Ottawa ought not, not that is, to be the permanent seat of government of this province. Well, so much for respecting Her Majesty's wishes. Tellingly, a small but significant number of erstwhile government supporters from the eastern section abandoned the government and voted with the opposition. That then left everyone uncertain of what to do. The vote had not officially been a confidence motion. It hadn't, hadn't come on the money vote itself. And remember, money votes in a responsible government are confidence votes. And when Parliament rejects a government's money vote, then the government falls. George Brown, though, took this moment to pounce. He rose to express what he saw as the significance of the vote, and he moved for the House to adjourn. Now, this was essentially a confidence vote. And if the members voted for Brown's motion, the government would have fallen. No doubt, a number of those who had been fined to vote patriotically for Montreal or Quebec a while earlier, now came to their senses and backtracked. On this issue, supporting Brown, they were not prepared to risk their political futures. The House voted down Brown's motion, and the government survived. Or at least it sort of survived. The House adjourned very late that night, after midnight. But as John A. MacDonald walked home late that night, he seems to have devised a plan to turn around his political fortunes in a clever maneuver. Yes, his government had survived. No, he did not need to resign. But maybe 
just maybe he should step down. Maybe there could be some political advantage in saying the equivalent of, okay, if you think this is so easy, you have a go at it, Mr. Brown. And that is exactly what McDonald did. The next day, all of the ministers tendered their resignations, saying that the previous day's vote had demonstrated that the current House did not have confidence in the government. And they asked the Governor General to dissolve Parliament and for there to be fresh elections. This, though, was something the Governor was reluctant to do. Canadians had only just gone to the polls in December. It was now the middle of summer and only a half a year had passed. So, Governor Head refused. Maybe someone else could form a government. Someone else would have to step into the mess and that this sectionally and religiously divided Canadian Parliament in the summer of 1858 represented, and perhaps they could eke out a majority. Now, who on earth could be crazy enough to try something like that? You guessed it, George Brown. But not just Brown, also Brown alongside the Rouge leader, Antoine Dorion. So when John A. Macdonald announced in the House that his government had resigned, he sat back and waited to see what would come. The governor looked about for who could form a government, sent a note requesting to meet with Brown. Brown said, well, let me think about it. He did think about it. He consulted his colleagues, and they decided, yes, they could try it. Now remember, Brown had been attempting to rebuild a reform coalition that could replace the liberal conservative macdonald cartier government for some time now. It was an implausible and difficult scenario, but not, not impossible, at least not theoretically. Today, we tend to think of political parties as hard and durable. They really exist. They impose discipline on their members. Heck, the party leader usually has to sign the papers of anyone who wants to run under the party banner. Now, true, some members of parliament today sit as independents or vote very occasionally against their party. But where today this show of independence is a rare occurrence, in the 1850s, it was a matter of course. Each of the so-called parties had a, a range of supporters from the more radical to the more moderate. There was very little in the way of overall party structure or discipline. Each individual member might vote with or against the party that they were supposedly identified with, depending on what was being voted on. Things get even more complicated when you understand that everything in the province of Canada was dual. There were attorneys general for each section, the education departments ran along different lines. And in the parties themselves, in the Reform Party, there were reformers in Lower Canada, the Rouge, and reformers in Upper Canada. And even within sections, it got complicated. Brown had won over most of the Upper Canadian reformers, but there were still outliers, including some of the more radical clear grits. And there was also a small group of moderates ranged around a man who we will come to in a few weeks. It's actually another John MacDonald, this one John Sandfield MacDonald. Now, I don't want us to get bogged down in the details here, but the point I'm making is that when Brown agreed to form a government, he was saying that he could somehow work out a deal that would bring these various factions together. On some points they did agree, but on many others they were divided. Yet Brown and Dorian sat down together and said that they could work out a compromise. As far as we can tell, the compromise was going to work something like this. The new reform government would be committed to Brown's cause of representation by population. For Brown, there would be no other reason to form a government, 
so strong had he been associated with this cause in particular. It's more surprising that Dorian agreed to it, but agree he did. Now, he seems to have agreed because the two leaders worked out some unspecified deal which is going to guarantee lower Canadian autonomy and status within the province. On the issue of education, on separate schools for Catholics, that perennial cause of contention, the two agreed to borrow Darcy McGee's idea of the Irish common school system, where different religions joined together for some subjects, but then moved separately for religious instruction. This was George Brown and Dorian's big chance. Alas, it didn't go well. The reason I'm having to only tentatively sketch out what the basis of the agreement was between the two reform sections is because the government barely lasted 48 hours. That's right, two days. They never spelled out a clear agenda in Parliament. They didn't have time. So anyone who thinks these modern-day prime ministers like Kim Campbell or John Turner didn't govern very long, well, they have nothing on poor old George Brown. Now, why so short? Well, to understand that means turning to a quaint little feature of parliamentary democracy that we briefly touched on in season one when we were discussing responsible government. This was the custom that when a member of parliament accepted the invitation to be one of Her Majesty's advisors, that is to be a minister and sit in cabinet, they had to seek re-election. They had to go back to the people, to their constituency and say, now, I know you elected me to be your representative in parliament to represent you, the people, but now I would like to advise the Crown and Her Majesty's government. This is a different thing altogether. I'm going to have to support the government. Will you allow me to do this? It might seem bizarre, and frankly, it became quite bizarre the longer the tradition lasted, but the principles are clear and they are rooted in the essence of responsible government. A government is responsible to Parliament, to the members of Parliament. Parliament has the right to support or turn out a government. So there are, there are different roles here, those who are and those who are not ministers of the crown. Ministers might be in parliament, and increasingly under responsible government most were, though some continued to sit after confederation even in the Senate, and though this was rare. But the government existed or fell based on the decisions of the people's representatives in parliament. This is why stodgy people like me think that excessive party discipline is a problem because it prevents the very thing that parliaments exist to do, to hold governments to account. The practice of having a series of by-elections every time someone became a cabinet minister, by the way, lasted until the late 1920s when it was finally abolished by Mackenzie King's government. This was after the famous King-Bing dispute of 1925 and 1926 when King had, in my opinion, scandalously taken advantage of the practice to turf out Arthur Meehan's government. It must have occurred to King that he himself could be turfed out in the same way, and so the practice was retired. But that's an issue for another day. In the summer of 1858, where we need to get back to right now, what this meant is that when supporters of the new Brown-Dorion government took up their seats in Parliament, they had to do so without all those who were to be members of Cabinet. All of the staunch reformers who were to be in Cabinet, all of the members of the government itself, had been forced to resign their seats and await a by-election. But because the switch took place in the middle of the session, Parliament had to continue to meet in order to finish the normal business. This meant that when Parliament resumed and the new government had to face its first test, it did so without the ministers. 
the ministers were instead forced to sit in the gallery and watch everything happen. This was bound to go wrong, and go wrong it did. Remember that in the election of December 1857, the, the previous government had won a majority of seats. The Macdonald Cartier government hadn't even been officially defeated. It had only resigned, sort of as a matter of honor, and sort of, as we'll see, out of a planned political ploy. There was no guarantee that the new administration of Brown and Dorion could win the confidence of the assembly. And this was even less likely without its staunchest supporters who were now sitting idly as spectators in the gallery. On the first day, almost the first thing that happened is that a conservative member from the eastern section immediately stood up and put forward a motion of non-confidence in the Brown-Dorion administration. Uh, the member of the former government, now sitting in opposition desks, attacked the government for being an unnatural combination. How could its French-Canadian members join with the anti-Catholic and hated George Brown of all people? The upper Canadian Tories asked the same question in reverse. How could George Brown, spokesperson for Protestantism, claim to join with a cadre of French Catholics? That the logic of making both attacks at once didn't fit together at all did not seem to matter to these critics. What was at issue that day in Parliament was whether the members of the Assembly thought that this new government could work. And by late in the evening, when the vote finally came, they gave their answer resoundingly no. The no-confidence motion passed with a huge majority. The Brown and Dorion government, only two days old, was no more. That, though, is only part of the story. It's here that things get really interesting. Within a matter of days, two governments had come and gone. One had resigned, and the other had been defeated. The governor had already denied a dissolution to MacDonald, would he now allow George Brown and his new government to dissolve Parliament and hold a new election? This is what Brown and the reformers wanted. They had never been sure that they could hold a majority in the Assembly as it was then configured. But if defeated, they could go to the governor, get a dissolution, and then go to the people as a government asking for the people's support. This is, by the way, almost certainly what ought to have happened. The governor-general, though, had other plans. In the 1850s, just as today, the final decision on whether to dissolve Parliament resides with the governor. If Her Majesty's representative in Canada believes that someone can form a government and command a majority in Parliament, then the governor can ask that person to attempt to form a government. That's what Governor Head had done when Macdonald had asked for a dissolution, and that's what Governor Head decided to do again now. Brown asked that Parliament be dissolved, and Head said no. This decision made Brown and reformers across the country furious. How on earth could the governor go against the wishes of his minister? This is exactly the kind of cry that Mackenzie King would later make in 1926, by the way. But in 1858, Brown never got a chance to take that campaign to the people. Instead, Governor Head first asked Alexander Galt if maybe he could form a government. Galt, you might recall, was the independent MP from the Eastern Townships who had so recently made the case for a union of the British North American colonies. For the most part, Galt was uninvolved in the partisan wrangling between the two sides, and so Head hoped to get him to lead. Galt wasn't interested, and so the governor turned elsewhere. Where did he turn? Well, he looked to a very familiar face, to Georges Etienne Cartier. Yes, this is the former second minister, the leader of the Eastern Section in what had, a few days before, been the Liberal Conservative government. 
In the days following their resignation, Cartier and MacDonald had been doing the rounds, talking to the various members, especially the loose fish on whose support no one could completely depend. They had been trying to work out some kind of new combination, and that is exactly what they had done. But this time, instead of MacDonald in the lead, Cartier stepped up. Governor had asked Cartier if he could form a government, and Cartier said, yes, I do believe I can. Cartier, as head of this new government, turned, of course, to none other than Johnny MacDonald to be head of the Western section. He turned basically to all of the former ministers who had only just resigned a few days earlier. There were a few changes, the most important being the invitation to Alexander Galt to enter the governor as Inspector General, the name given to what we would now call Finance Minister. Galt entered the government on the condition that the new administration support his plan for a wider British North American Union. So yes, we are definitely going to talk about this idea in the future. But for now, the new Cartier-McDonald government had to show that it could do better than the rather quite similar McDonald-Cartier administration. And it had to show this in the face of seething anger from many upper Canadians who were astounded at the behavior of the governor-general. How on earth could Governor Head refuse a dissolution? How could essentially the same administration return to office after they had only just resigned? The new government was, as George Brown's biographer put it, merely the old firm under a new name. Yet the firm, old or new, had one more trick up its sleeve. Surely, you might be thinking, the new government is going to face the same problem as Brown's government. Its ministers, now that they again want to sit as Her Majesty's advisors, need to resign their seats and go back to the people to be re-elected as ministers. Then they would face potentially the same fate as Brown, being undermanned in this unstable parliament with no clear majority. That's what you would think. But the government had one trick yet to play, and it was this trick that gave the whole event its name, the Double Shuffle. What they proceeded to do was a legal trick that was nonetheless a bit too clever by half. That's, that's even how John A. MacDonald's bio- biographer Douglas Creighton put it, and Creighton was notoriously sympathetic to MacDonald. They intended to rely on a side clause in a recent election act that said if a minister changed portfolio, resigning from one post and taking up another within the same month, then they did not need to seek re-election. Now, clearly the purpose of the bill was to allow for what we would now call a cabinet shuffle, where one or maybe more ministers switched portfolios, moving from one area to another. What it had not been intended for is what the new Cartier-McDonald government used the clause for, and that is this. Each of the members of the new government all swore oaths of allegiance, swearing themselves into one cabinet post, one that they had not occupied before and which, frankly, they had no intention of holding for long. This was the cabinet shuffle which, they held, meant that unlike Brown's ministers, they didn't need to go back to the people to have confirmed. They had just been ministers in the old government, right? So they were merely switching portfolios. Then, the next day, at just after midnight, to make it seem that at least two days had elapsed, each of the ministers resigned and were sworn back into their old posts. They switched once, then they switched again. It was a double shuffle. What was perhaps most astounding was that Governor Head, the Governor General, allowed the shenanigans to pass off as if it was perfectly normal parliamentary behavior. And that's what burned. 
Head might have been constitutionally correct in both cases, that is, in first turning down Brown's request for a dissolution, and again in allowing the too clever and almost fraudulent double shuffle to pass. But it certainly looked as if the governor general had played favorites, that he had unfeelingly denied Brown's request for a dissolution and new election, and then looked the other way when those whom he happened to like a bit more, the liberal conservative ministers, did their dirty work. Certainly the reform papers, the globe at the top of the list, portrayed the whole scandal in this light. The Tory papers, meanwhile, suggested that Brown had simply grasped for power too eagerly, that he hadn't been able to command a majority and shouldn't have tried. He had fallen into John A. Macdonald's trap. With the double shuffle done and the old new government back in charge, it looked like things might just continue on as they had before. But there were two new elements that just might change the game. Two themes will follow next day. One was the question of what Brown would do. Now that he had been thoroughly betrayed by the existing system, now that his single most promising attempt to form a government and win responsible government had failed under the current administration and constitutional arrangement, how would he react? Would he follow the more radical clear grits amongst his followers and embrace republicanism more thoroughly, rejecting the union and parliamentary democracy that had just so obviously failed him? Second, there is the new element in the new old government, Mr. Alexander Galt and his scheme for British North American Union. Was the new government serious about pursuing Galt's scheme? We shall see next day. Thank you for listening to 1867 and all that, and for my account of one of my favorite quirky episodes in Canadian history. Next time, we'll start right back up with Alexander Galt's scheme for British North American Union. We'll follow him to London and back. And then we'll also watch as the visit of one British teenager to Canada, a kind of gap year holiday, goes astray with hilarious and frankly politically dangerous results. That's what happens when you're not just a teenager, but also the Prince of Wales, son of the reigning monarch. There will be orange arches, and the prince just won't walk under them. Alas, you're going to have to wait one extra week to get this episode. That's because I'm taking advantage of the fact that I'm on sabbatical to take an unprecedented in-academic year-term holiday. Uh, Possibly even as you're listening to this right now, I'll be in the American South soaking up the sun and doing the thing I most enjoy in life, probably even more uh, than reading history, if I'm honest, uh, and that is playing tennis. But we'll be back in two weeks' time to carry on the story. Until then, remember, there's a lot of all that to 1867 and all that.